Well, if you have your Bibles, I'd be really glad if you'd open those up with me to the book of, of Acts. Acts chapter 4 is where we're going to be today. Lord willing, we will uh, get through uh, verse 37 of Acts chapter 4. I'll start in verse 23. If you brought your own Bibles, great. If not, there should be a hardback black one like this in a seat back not too far away. And if you're looking for Acts chapter 4, at least the verses will be in. It's on page 858, 858 in that hardback black one. I'd like to start, as I often do, with a question. And the question I'd like to ask you is, what would you do if you were told by uh, the state governor that you are no longer to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus Christ? What if the governor of Texas issued an order next week that said Christians are no longer allowed to openly preach in the name of Jesus, either individually or even in gathered congregations like this one here, what would you do? Now, I'm not particularly asking you how you would respond in that specific moment. I'm asking more so, what would be the first thing you would do? Would you call a friend and maybe ask for some advice about how to think this through? Would you go back home by yourself and just contemplate your options on your own? Would you gather together with your fellow church members and would you pray and seek God's direction and particularly seek God's boldness to respond with faithfulness in the midst of this persecution? Well, that's exactly what Peter and John did and the whole church in Jerusalem here in Acts chapter four gathered the whole church together and prayed. When we left off on our study of the book of Acts a couple of Sundays ago, Peter and John had just been released from a short stay in jail for preaching the gospel. They had healed a guy and then preached the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, telling everyone around that the reason that this man had been healed is because Jesus is Lord and that he is the one who is the the Christ, the Messiah who had been prophesied of old. Uh, Many people had believed the message that they proclaimed, but the government and religious officials, uh, they weren't very happy at all. And they had charged Peter and John and by implication, all Christians to not, this is Acts chapter four, verse 18, not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. In our passage today, we're going to consider how they responded, how they prayed and what their life looked like among this earliest church family and Lord willing, we'll gain what we can from it and seek to apply such things in our own lives. May God help us to be so bold and so loving as we seek to honor Christ with our lives. Let's look then at Acts chapter four, verses 23 to 37. I'm going to ask you to stand with me as I read from this passage. One of the, one of the reasons we stand is so we can uh, express an honor for God's word. And as I said, I'll read from Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 23 and all the way down to verse 37. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, 
there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their hearts, their threats, and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them for as many were as were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Thank you, Lord, for your word. You can all be seated. Uh, The main point that I'm going to try to draw out uh, that I believe is the main point of the passage here this morning is the sovereign God who governs whatsoever comes to pass, unites his people in love and empowers them as his witnesses in the world. As is our normal here at FBC Diana, this Sunday morning we're gathered to uh, praise God through song, to praise God through singing, to confess our sin through prayer, uh, and also to sit underneath the preaching of God's word, which we understand is uh, supposed to be normally the normal diet of preaching in any congregation. Uh, we believe should be expositional preaching, that kind of preaching where the point of the sermon is drawn out of the point, the main point of the text that we're in. So I'm intending this Sunday to do as I normally would, and that is to draw out from this passage what we ought to learn primarily from this passage, what we are to know, what we're to understand about what God is revealing here to us. And that's my aim with this main point. The sovereign God who governs whatsoever comes to pass, unites his people in love, and empowers them as his witnesses in the world. There'll be five points. The last point, number five, will be a bit more application heavy, and so that one will be a little longer than the rest, but you'll catch catch it as we go along. So let's just begin with point number one, the centrality of prayer. In this passage and all throughout the book of Acts, prayer is central. Just after Jesus ascended to his kingly throne at the right hand of the Father in Acts chapter 1, when the disciples were left alone in the world, we're told in Acts chapter 1 verse 14, they devoted themselves to prayer. When the disciples wanted to fill the gap that Judas had left among the apostles, and they wanted to have God's own wisdom and guidance for who should take Judas's place. Well, we're told in Acts chapter 1, verse 24, that they prayed for direction from the Lord. Just after the first gospel presentation, the way that Peter explained that Jesus is the Christ and the resurrected Lord of everybody and the Savior of those who repent and believe, 
we're told that the ones who responded with repentance and faith, they're in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, they devoted themselves to prayer. And now here in Acts chapter 4, in our passage this morning, when the earliest Christians in Jerusalem were being threatened by the authorities, both the governmental and religious authorities, to stop preaching or teaching in the name of Jesus Christ, we're told in verse 24 of our passage this morning, they lifted up their voices in prayer. As we'll see throughout the book of Acts, the prayer, uh, the prayer of Christians, particularly Christians, Christians gathered together, that prayer, again, was central to the experience of early Christians. They knew that they depended upon God for everything. They knew that God alone could convert sinners, could preserve saints, that God alone could grow the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in the world. And so they prayed. They prayed for boldness. They prayed for provision. They prayed for supernatural endurance, for the wisdom to make good decisions. They prayed over the big stuff, the small stuff, and everything in between. When they faced hard-hearted unbelievers, they prayed. When they faced tyrannical governors and corrupt politicians, they prayed. When they faced hypocrisy and sin, even among their own ranks, they prayed. Brothers and sisters, we as Christians are a people of prayer because God is our Heavenly Father and because He loves us and welcomes us to Himself through Jesus Christ. And so we pray. As a matter of fact, that's the, one of the main reasons we gather together on the second Sunday of each month during the Sunday evening at 5 o'clock. We come back in this same auditorium, which we'll be doing tonight, in order to pray, to pray together, to share our concerns with one another, and to lift those to God together as a congregation. If you're able to make it, I'd encourage you to do that. Point number two, an exemplary prayer. And not only is prayer central to the experience of Christianity, but this prayer is especially an exemplary one. Now, let's take a moment to focus on the prayer that these early Christians prayed when they faced the threat of punishment from their own government for doing exactly what God had commanded them to do. I think the circumstance may not be very far ahead in our own future, and I also think that the words of this prayer can help inform us about how we should think and speak and pray for ourselves in whatever our circumstances are, whether we ever face persecution like this or not. This exemplary prayer begins in our passage in verse 24, and it begins with prayer, with praise. Look at it with me. They prayed, and here's how they started, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Now, this opening address acknowledges God as the sovereign or master and it also names God as the creator of everything. And this is certainly the way good prayers begin. When we pray as a family at my house, often I have paused for a moment before we start to pray to remind myself, as well as anybody else, that we're about to approach the God of the universe, the king of everything, the master of, of all. He is Lord, and we should approach him with praise, with humble worship. God is God, and so we should approach him this way. This is one of the reasons that we formally begin our service each Sunday morning in the way that we do. We start with a reading from Scripture, because we want God's Word to be the first word. God's Word is the Word that's, that brings life from death, light from darkness. God's Word is the Word that has created us as a church to begin with. 
So we want God's word to be the first word formally formally spoken as we gather as a church family. And then we want the very first word that we have in response to God's word to be a word of praise. We want our first words back to God after we hear his word declared in our midst. We want our words to be words of praise back to God. And so that's why Josh led us this morning in a prayer of praise, the beginning of our service. That's why we organize our services in this way. In fact, brothers and sisters, I would encourage you this afternoon to pray a prayer of praise to the Lord. Uh, When you go to God in prayer, maybe take some time this afternoon, don't ask for anything. Don't talk about yourself at all. Just concentrate on one of God's own attributes, his love, his holiness, his goodness, his kindness. Think about his power. Uh, Think about his eternality, his timelessness. Think about his his otherness, his self-existence. Think about such a thing for a little while. And then pray a prayer of praise as long as you can keep your mind focused on that one thing about who God is. It'll be time really well spent. Another feature, though, of this exemplary prayer that we find in Acts chapter 4 is the way that these believers trust in God's sovereignty and providence even as they lament their own persecution. Now, in verses 25 and 26, we find some really fascinating stuff. We have both the human and the divine authorship of Scripture affirmed here. We have a particular psalm cited as the words of the Holy Spirit himself. We also have an Old Testament citation in the New Testament, which is a word-for-word citation from an ancient manuscript, an ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. All that stuff is fascinating, and we don't have time to get into any of it today. But you can always invite me to lunch later, and we can talk it over, and I'd be so happy to do that both to eat and to talk about all these fun things. Right now, though, what I want to do is highlight the emphatic trust that these Christians had in God as the ultimate sovereign over everything in life. There in verse, uh, in, uh, verse 27, they, they understand that what's happening is something that was prophesied of old. And so they cite Psalm 2, saying, Why did the Gentiles or the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? And then they interpreted what had happened to Jesus as the fulfillment of that text. So they saw in in verse 27, Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, all gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. The word there underneath is literally the Messiah or the Christ in Psalm 2. The second thing that these believers understood, this second but related aspect of this part of the prayer is that God governs whatsoever comes to pass, borrowing from the language of both the Westminster Confession and also the London Baptist Confession. They understood that God governs whatsoever comes to pass, exercising sovereignty even over the most heinous event of all time, the murder of God in human form. They acknowledged, this is really important, so hear me say it, they acknowledged that the most wicked and heinous sin crime of all time, the murder of Jesus, the only righteous man who ever lived, was underneath the providential sovereign control of God. So is God in charge of both the good and the bad? I give you the most incredible uh, set of evidence that we possibly could that the most wicked event of all time, God is in charge of according to Scripture. This is what they are relying upon. They understand this. Look at verse 28. 
they knew that all those who gathered against the Lord's Christ in Jerusalem, that they did so according, their gathering and even what they, what they did, they did according to whatever God's hand and God's plan had predestined, had decided beforehand to take place. Now, such a statement does not in any way excuse what Pilate or Herod or the Gentile or Jewish mob did. But so, too, this prayer does not fail to recognize that God ultimately governs all of human history. And that includes every detail of my life and yours. And brothers and sisters, this is precisely why we pray. We pray because God is sovereign. We pray because God is in control of everything. And so we go to the one who is in charge and we ask him to do what only he can do. This is why we pray. We bring God our praise and our heartache. We glorify him in prayer and we plead for his help in prayer because we know that he is actually the one who can do something about everything. These Christians, they teach us to pray prayers that begin with praise and prayers that express trust in God's sovereignty over every situation. And one more thing that I'm going to make it its own point. So point number three, a prayer for boldness to speak. This one more feature that I'd like to point out of their prayer is something that is, is so big that I wanted to give it its own point, and that's why it's point number three instead of just a sub-point of number two. Did you notice in this prayer what these Christians asked for? Think about it for a second. What did they ask God to do? Their situation was grim. They had just had two of their key leaders arrested. The officials did let them go, but it seems that the only reason they did is because it was politically expedient to do so. Additionally, those same officials threatened them with more punishment if they were to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. In fact, in their prayer, these believers seemed to understand that their own persecution that they were facing right there in that day was an extension of the same persecution that Jesus had already faced before them. Indeed, the group threatening these early Christians was the same group who had arrested and condemned Jesus to the cross, as we've talked about in previous weeks. Not only were the worldly authorities gathered against God's holy servant, according to Psalm 2 and verse 27 of Acts 4, but these worldly authorities were also arrayed against anyone else who would follow after Jesus. And friends, this kind of persecution should not be a surprise to Christians of any age. Jesus warned his disciples in John chapter 15, verses 18 to 20. He said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Jesus went on and said, remember the word I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me... And most assuredly they did. Jesus said, they will also persecute you. And the advancement of history throughout the world has testified to the fact that this warning wasn't only for the earliest Christians. Now, most certainly Christians have experienced a greater and lesser degree of persecution in the world. Some time periods and geographical locations have given rise to unspeakable opposition to Christianity. And yet other times and locations have provided something of a safe haven for Christians to freely pursue truth and godliness. As a matter of fact, for centuries, the Western world has been just such a haven for Christians. 
We've not only avoided persecution in the Western world, but we have enjoyed many of the world's most prestigious benefits. Christians in the West have had wealth beyond anything our ancestors could have, could have imagined, and we've had political influence and social standing unlike anything I know in history. We've had such freedom and such opportunity that many Christians, it seems to me, in the West have forgotten that this world is not our friend. The world around us may seem hospitable to biblical Christianity for the moment, but just wait until the Bible condemns something the world celebrates, or wait until the Bible celebrates something the world condemns. You will see everything for what it truly is if you just look. Now, the loss of these comforts that we once enjoyed in the West is a painful one, and we might be tempted to fight for them. In fact, we might even be be tempted to think that God most definitely wants us to have them, these freedoms and luxuries. After all, look at what good has been done in the world through Christians who have wealth and power and influence. But how did these early Christians pray about persecution? Did they ask God to rid them of it? Did they ask God to grant them political power over their enemies? Not in this prayer, they didn't. And I think it's because they expected that persecution was a necessary part of being a Christian in a hostile world. I think they would be surprised out of their minds to see just how cozy American evangelical has become with the world around us. They didn't pray for God to reverse the threats of those who opposed them. But instead, the church in Jerusalem prayed that God would enable and empower them. Look at verse 29 to continue to speak his word with boldness. They prayed for boldness despite the threat of persecution. What a courageous and humble prayer. Now, I'm not saying that the New Testament doesn't give us uh, commands and examples elsewhere of Christians praying and seeking to live a quiet and and, uh, lives of harmony with others around them so far as it depends upon us. Certainly we should do that. But there's something to be said here about the natural Christian posture toward persecution. Christianity is not a religion of the sword. We do not extend Christ's kingdom in the world through political influence or economic strength. That's not the church's mission. Instead, the church's mission is to faithfully live as witnesses of Christ and to watch Jesus be the one who builds his kingdom through bold gospel witness. Point number four, unity expressed in love. Uh, The church in Jerusalem seemed to love one another, and that's expressed in the language we read in verse 32. Verse 32 begins, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. The Greek word that's translated full number or multitude or congregation or group, depending on your translation, is a word that expresses the totality of a large crowd or assembly. This assembly of Christians was definitely a big crowd. There were at least uh, 5,000 of them and possibly more than 30,000. The numbers fluctuate wildly because of the not-so-clear statements about numbers that we find in the early portions of the book of Acts. Uh, But it indeed was a single assembly or church. Think about it with me for a moment. Acts 2 ends with more than 3,000 Christians in Jerusalem who were attending the temple together. Acts chapter 2, verses 46 and 47. They were, uh, this church was growing day by day, we're told. 
And in our passage in Acts 4, it tells us that when Peter and John were released from legal custody under the order of a council of Jewish leaders, they went to their friends, as the ESV has it, and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said. That's in verse 23. Now, friends, or their friends, is probably not the clearest term to describe a giant megachurch unified in Jerusalem. But the English standard, I think, has a bad translation here. Some of you will be happy to know the King James has a pretty good one. Their own company is the way the King James puts it. The Net Bible says fellow believers, or the NIV, I think, gets the closest, and that's their own people. The word underneath there is their ones, the ones with them kind of an idea. But even if we don't know Greek and aren't able to get down underneath what our translation might say, let's look at the context and even see who are these friends and how does the passage tell us that they were. Well, verse 24 says, And when they, okay, Peter and John's friends, these are the ones we're looking at, when they heard it, they, the friends, lifted their voices together in prayer. Now, after we read through the prayer, we get down to verse 31. And verse 31 says, And when they, again, the friends, had prayed, the place where they were, where they were gathered uh, together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And don't stop in verse 31 just because there's a paragraph break in your translation. But verse 32 goes on to say, Now and the full number or multitude or congregation or group of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Now I ask you, is there anything in the context of this passage or in the logical flow of it that would lead us to believe that Luke intends to tell us that the friends and those who believed are two different groups of folks? I think the answer is clearly no. In fact, I think the context and the logical flow of the passage gives me the impression that the friends and those who believed are exactly the same folks. It seems to me the massive church in Jerusalem, we're told in this passage, that they gathered together for prayer and that the whole church was filled with the Holy Spirit, verse 31, and that the whole church continued to speak the word of God with boldness, verse 31, and that the whole church shared the same heart and soul as they expressed genuine love in a very tangible way among one another. Now, there's much more that can be said of the significance of this one assembly or church in Jerusalem. But let me underscore right now the love that formed or shaped their unity. So I've been kind of emphasizing their unity. Let's look at the love that created such a unity. How was it expressed? Well, in verse 32, we're told that they were of one heart and soul. They loved one another. Then verse 32 also says that no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. And, as the passage continues, there was not a needy person among them because those church members who owned land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds to contribute to a sort of gigantic benevolence fund, it seems. Now, brothers and sisters, there certainly are other ways besides sacrificial generosity for showing love to fellow church members. But that's a big one. It's a very obvious one. The generous giving away of our own treasure for the benefit of others is otherworldly. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't invest or that we shouldn't save for retirement or that we shouldn't enjoy the fruit of our own labor. But even self-loving, God-hating, worldly people can do that stuff. Sacrificial generosity is a peculiar sort of virtue that is a repeated command and a stunning example that we see in New Testament Christianity. 
And sacrificial generosity is a display of genuine love, which is a basic building block of real unity. Not just the absence of infighting, but real unity, which is created by love for one another. This is what this early church exemplifies for us. It's what it shows us. It's how, it's how it looks on the page. Again, this is not the only way that we can example or be examples of this following, following their examples. But it is, it is a demonstration of their genuine love that they share with one another. And my prayer is that God would continue to grow us in just such a kind of love. Point number five, a narrow focus for the local church. A narrow focus for the local church. Now, this whole passage, it seems to me, is, uh, is highlighting what I'm calling here in my last point, a narrow focus for the local church. There are basically two things that every church member is doing in Acts chapter 4 and throughout Acts, as we'll see as we continue to study it. And both of these two things that we see the church doing, they shape the mission of the local church, which is explained in greater detail in various places in the New Testament. So specifically in the pastoral letters or epistles from uh, the Apostle Paul to uh, Timothy and Titus, for example. Uh, it explains what the mission of the church is. But we see it We see it right here on display. A local church might do many good things, but there are some things that a church must do in order to be a New Testament church. What makes a church something different than you know, the Boys and Girls Club, or the YMCA, uh, some, some uh, local uh, benevolence uh, arm uh, in a particular community, trying to help meet the needs of those who are without food or without jobs. What makes a church different? Well, the two broad categories that I see in our passage today are, one, loving, particularly loving one another, and two, witnessing. So loving one another inside the church and witnessing to the world outside the church. And certainly Christians need God's help to do both of these. So let's first concentrate our focus on this loving one another. And loving fellow church members is what I'm really wanting to sort of ring the bell again. As I pointed out, the tangible expression of love that we see in our passage is financial generosity. But there are many ways that we might express love among a local church. How we love will look different depending on the circumstances, depending on who we know among the church family, what needs we're aware of. But that we love is essential. It's an essential aspect of what it means to be a family of believers, a, a church. Love was a major focus of last week's sermon whenever we concentrated on church membership. We looked at Romans chapter 12, and we saw that Christians there are commanded to love one another with brotherly affection. Romans chapter 12, verse 10. The New, church, the New Testament church of Thessalonica was commended for their mutual love when the Apostle Paul wrote to them saying in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9, he said, Concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. In other words, their reputation for loving one another was so good. He said, I don't have to, I don't have to write to you guys at all about that. You're already doing such a good job. God gave supreme place to Christian love among the local church in 1 Peter chapter 4 when God spoke through the Apostle Peter saying, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. So he gives it this supreme place. Above all else, do this. And what does he say do? Well, keep loving one another earnestly. And he says, since love covers 
a multitude of sins. And of course, Jesus told us that we are to love one another even as he has loved us. John tells us in one of his letters in the New Testament that we know what love looks like by looking at how God has shown his own love for us in and through Jesus Christ. So Christians then are those who love horizontally because of the love they've experienced already vertically. And the two are interrelated. In fact, Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, that it was by our love for one another that all people will know that we are his disciples. Love for fellow believers is something that is a testimony to the watching world that we are of Christ. We are Christians. Now, brothers and sisters, I am overjoyed to see the various ways that many of you love one another. I've been so glad and am so glad today to be on the receiving end of love among this church family. And it is a a great and wonderful thing to see us loving one another uh, and generally growing in love for one another. When we truly love each other, we forgive wrongs, we bear one another's burdens, we confront sin in each other, and we don't give up on each other when it would be so easy to be bitter or to be envious or to be prideful. The watching world will not find a gathering of perfect people here. And they may see us do or not do a whole lot of things that are off-putting to them. But they, the watching world, will find a church full of members who love one another. And I praise God for that. Because again, as I said, only God could do such a thing. It's also worth noting, though, and listen to this part carefully, that the kind of personally sacrificing love that we see exemplified in Acts 4 and commanded throughout the New Testament is specifically commanded for Christians among Christians. Now, of course, we should all love our neighbors. But this command is primarily about doing our neighbor no wrong. You can see that quoted in Romans chapter 13, verse 10. The way the Apostle Paul describes loving your neighbor is to not do them wrong, not do them harm. But uh, this is not the same as the self-sacrificing, the giving of yourself uh, to those whom you love among the local body of believers to which you are a part. We don't, we're not necessarily commanded throughout the New Testament to give ourselves away sacrificially to the unbelievers around us. We may certainly sacrifice our time, our treasure, and our talent for the sake of non-Christians. In fact, such a thing, no doubt, does contribute to the general good of our community, our nation, and the world. But the kind of love we see displayed in our passage, the kind of love that we see commanded in Scripture, is to be especially exercised among the fellowship of the saints to whom we are joined with an eternal bond. Let me try to explain this a bit further or express it further with a question. So how is your love for your fellow church members peculiar or different from the general kind of love you know you're supposed to have for everybody else in the world? If you're able to answer that question, then you're kind of getting to the understanding of what I'm trying to express here this morning. There is meant to be a different kind of love, a different way in which we express love for fellow church members, for fellow Christians, than the way that we're generally called to love everyone in the world. Christians don't merely love one another by not doing one another harm. Christians love one another by generously and tangibly caring, even at great personal cost. 
This is the kind of love that we see on display in Acts 4. And this is the kind of love that I'm calling us to here today. This is the kind of love the Bible is calling us to here today that is indicative of what a New Testament church is and does. The second category of activity that we see in the passage, though, so the first one is love, love for one another. The second one, which is actually the primary, uh, it is a major feature of the primary mission of every local church, is witnessing to the world outside the church, witnessing to non-Christians. When these early Christians were forbidden to evangelize, to speak at all in the name of Jesus, they prayed that God would empower them to keep on doing it anyway. And that's because this is the main reason that we're here on earth. This is the thing that Jesus has left us here to do. This is true of individual Christians, and it's true of entire congregations of them. Just before Jesus ascended into glory in Acts chapter 1, he commissioned his followers to be his witnesses. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. And this is exactly what the apostles and all the Christians there in Jerusalem were doing. They were giving witness to Christ, telling non-Christians about who Jesus is, that he's the prophesied Messiah. Telling non-Christians about what Jesus did, that he died in the place of sinners. And telling telling non-Christians about what Jesus was coming again to do. To judge both the wicked and then also to rescue, to glorify even his people. This is what, what Christians have been doing throughout the centuries. Even when they have been threatened and persecuted for doing it. In fact, did you know that the word martyr, that it comes from the word that means witness? The old word, the Greek word that means witness, that's translated witness, is a word that sounds like martyr. It's basically just a transliteration. This, the, the persecution that we're reading about here in Acts chapter uh, 2, 3, and 4, uh, this initial persecution, it only ramped up over the next couple hundred years in uh, the first, first uh, couple of centuries of Christianity. And so frequently were those who bore witness to Christ in some sort of public way, so frequently were they persecuted for following Jesus that to be a witness for Christ became synonymous with dying as a Christian witness. Thankfully, we're not facing anything like martyrdom in America today. But I do wonder uh, how much we, any of us, might be prepared to face any kind of opposition to preaching the gospel. Not just, you know, difficult persecution. I wonder how many of us are ready to face any opposition If someone says, stop doing it. I also wonder how much uh, emphasis is given in many local churches to gospel preaching. Not just doing good stuff or living good lives, but genuinely pointing to the reality that Jesus is Lord and Savior and the only one there is. During the time of the Protestant Reformation, there was a recovery of faithful biblical preaching because there was a reawakening to the idea that the local church is what Martin Luther called a mouth house, a place that verbally witnesses, bears witness to the lordship and the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as Savior. So friends, I want you to hear me on this, that if we, if we were a church who organized some great community events, if we as a church family ended homelessness in East Texas, if we were, if we were able to eradicate poverty and abuse entirely, but we failed to consistently and clearly preach the gospel here, then we would fail the mission that Christ has given us as a church. As I said, there are many good things we might do, but there are some things we must do 
And preaching the gospel is one of those things we must do in order to be a New Testament church. So too in our own individual lives, we must not lose sight of the main task at hand. So as a church, we have to constantly be uh, putting aside those good things we might be doing in order to not be distracted from the thing we must be doing. Proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Making disciples by teaching each other what Jesus has done, who he is, and what he has commanded us to do. This is the task of the local church. And we have to constantly say no to other things because this is our task and we don't want anything else to get in the way. But that's also true of us in our individual lives. We as individual Christians, we have to remember that God has put us in exactly the place he has. He's put you in the office where you work. He's put you working beside the co-workers that you have in the oven-like shop that you work in. Uh, he has given you the job that he has, the, the family that he has, the life circumstances, circumstances that he has, the good situation and the bad, the pains, the heartaches, the joys, the times to celebrate. He's given you all of that in order to be his witnesses at this particular time in the world. This is what we see on display in Acts chapter 4. Those Christians didn't get to pick the circumstances in which they lived. God gave it to them that way. And they trusted that God intends for his good ends to give them exactly the circumstances that they did, that they had. And what was it they were commissioned to do? What was it they were exemplifying here in Acts chapter 4 for us to emulate? They were loving one another well. And they were witnessing boldly even in the face of difficulty. My prayer this morning is that God would unite us as a church family in supernatural love so that even if we do have disagreements among us, that love will overcome such things. Even if we do, when we do, sin against each other and hurt each other's feelings and actually offend each other, that we would be able to overcome those offenses, forgive those sins because we love one another. My prayer is also that God would make us faithful witnesses as a church gathered. That we would be a church that never stops preaching and teaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That we wouldn't just become a community of folks who want to do good or live good lives. But that we keep pointing to the, Jesus, to the, to the Messiah, the Christ, who is Jesus Christ the Lord, who has lived and who has died in the place of sinners, and who's conquered death, giving us lasting and eternal hope. And my prayer is also that God would help us as individual Christians in each of our lives to live consistently, as faithfully as we may, and to open our mouths and to share the good news of Jesus with others so that they too might come to know the same marvelous and glorious Savior for who he truly is. May God help us in all of these ways. In fact, let's go to him now and let's ask him to do that.